This is episode number 179 of the Rising Man podcast with Stephen Jenkinson. Avoiding death prevents us from truly living. Blessings and good rising to you, family. Jetty Azuma here behind the mic for another interview episode of the Rising Man podcast. So grateful to be here with you this morning. Before we jump into today's guest, I want to remind you guys that we are launching our next cohort of our 12-week online program called Ignite. For any of you guys out there who are looking for your first foray into men's work or simply looking for a deeper dive into yourself to reveal some of your blind spots and to do so in an amazing community of men, you got 24 hours to use the promo code SUMMERHEAT30, all caps, SUMMERHEAT30. This will give you 30% off of the price of Ignite. It expires at midnight on Friday, June 18th, Pacific Standard Time. So go check it out today. If you need to find information for Ignite, go to risingman.org slash Ignite. That's where it's living at. Go check it out and get yourself in there today. All right, everybody. My guest for today is a returning guest, Mr. Steven Jenkinson. He is a culture activist, teacher, and author. He teaches internationally and is the creator and principal instructor of the Orphan Wisdom School, co-founded with Natalie Roy in 2010. He has master's degrees from Harvard University in theology and the University of Toronto in social work. He apprenticed to a master storyteller when he was a young man, and he's worked extensively with dying people and their families. Since co-founding Nights of Grief and Mystery with Gregory Hoskins in 2015, he has toured his musical tent show revival storytelling ceremony of a show across North America, the UK, Europe, Australia, and New Zealand. He's the author of Come of Age, The Case for Elderhood in a Time of Trouble, and the award-winning Die Wise, a manifesto for sanity and soul, as well as many other compelling texts. He's also the subject of the feature-length documentary film Griefwalker, a portrait of his work with dying people, and Lost Nation Road, a shorter documentary on the crafting of the Knights of Grief and Mystery Tour. In our last discussion, Stephen and I discussed the presence of ancestorlessness in our modern society and the problematic relationship we have with living and particularly with dying. In this episode, Stephen and I spoke about the inevitability of death and allowing ourselves to feel more deeply than we are used to or comfortable with. We talked about grief and why do we avoid it? What are we missing when it comes to grief? Stephen referenced patriarchy as a direct cause for the absence of deep feeling, and we went into deeper discussion about that. And lastly, Stephen spoke on the risk of optimism, why we must admit that it's too late for a lot of things and process that grief in order to truly move forward. This and so much more, but without further ado, Stephen Jenkinson. All right, Rising Man family, I've got a returning guest, a community favorite here, Mr. Steven Jenkinson, coming in live from somewhere in Mexico today. How are you today, Steve? Actually, I was in Mexico until four days ago. I'm in Southern Ontario now and in the east part of the province. Oh, you made it back. Okay. Yeah. So I've got a lot of, I got more road miles on me right now than that fish and chips you had not so long ago. (laughs) Well, I'm glad that you made it back north. I know that was quite a journey for you there. It was. I was just telling you before we started recording that it was a year ago, almost exactly a year ago that we first had you on here. We were talking a lot in reflection of the global quarantine and the pandemic that was just emerging. And now we have a lot more information about that a year from now. And 
clearly people are still suffering. So just starting from where we left off, we were talking a lot about people's relationship with death and dying. Is there anything else that really stands out to you about our collective relationship with death and dying after watching this for the past year? Well, I suppose I have a forlornness about it all that I probably did not have a year ago. Mm. And it's about this, you know, I hear a lot of talk about we're closer to our death, you know, it's much more present, uh, we're much more death-versed now, and so on. This is so demonstrably not true, mm. you know. If that's how you come by it, you know, before the pandemic, people were dying every day, basically all around you. The fact that you didn't have an, a visual access to their death, that hasn't changed. You don't have it now. You can't get anywhere close to somebody dying of COVID now for all the obvious reasons. So lo and behold, what's happened is already in the last year, the kind of crisis proportion that could have prompted us towards sanity at so many levels has already been absorbed back in to the sort of business as usual mind. And what's the sign of it? For me, the sign of it is that all this talk about how it used to be. And now it was great before the pandemic and the pandemic sucks. And of course, it'll be great after the pandemic as if, as if there'd be such a thing as after the pandemic. Mm. Or oh, there might be different you know, things that have to be done. And, but I'm not persuaded for a second, first of all, that the pandemic is going to fade into insignificance any more than there was no such thing as the flu. I mean, people were dying of the flu in their legions in North America through the, you know, all the winters over the last choose your decades. Obviously, at some level, this is what's going to become of the pandemic. It'll become part of the architecture because we're already learning that the uh, vaccines and so on don't banish it, right? Mm -hmm. So we have all of that to look forward to. The question is, how shall we live given that this is present among us for the foreseeable future? And have we in any way forsaken our fantasies about the fact that before the pandemic, we had it going on and now we've <laughs> been interrupted in our you know, headlong flight towards real sanity and real ecological responsibility and all. And it's just bullshit. It wasn't true then and it's not true now. And that's the yes. part that leaves me so forlorn is... This was a real chance to get so many things right politically and at a number of other levels, including personally and psychologically and philosophically and the rest. But we had to take seriously the calamity minus the piles of bodies in the street. Mm. See, we had to be able to derive a sense of urgency from this that didn't require billions of people keeling over dead in the subways and so on. And when people aren't dying in their droves, as we once anticipated when you and I spoke a year ago, you know, the cautionary tale and the fair warning and the remarkable opportunity to course correct has already seems to me to have faded from view. So I'm, uh, I'm sad about it more than any other thing. Well, and, and I agree with you. I've seen traces of that in my close circles where there's this desire and longing to get back to normal, back to normal. That's a phrase that just baffles me because I, I remember you and I were sharing our thoughts about how this could be a really great opportunity a year ago, a really great opportunity for people to 
wake up in a sense and see the world through a different lens. And I agree that here we are a year later and a lot of it is capitalized by a desire to go back to something instead of forward into something new. So you said sanity. I love that you use the word sanity. What is sanity around an event of like dying and death look like to you? Well, the funny thing about dying, not funny, haha, but peculiar, is that dying is two things at exactly the same time that seem to be opposites. It is the most ordinary of outcomes, right? So it's as predictable as the sun coming up, at least as predictable as that. You could set your course by the inevitability of your death on the one side. On the other side, it is so uncharted, so unknown in a fundamental way, and so much the undoing of your plans and your anticipations and all your sense of priority and so on, that the idea that you could actually be ready for such a thing is either laughable or tragic or both. So it carries both of those things at the same time, you see? In other words, it is the ultimate opportunity to awaken. That's what dying is. So here's what happens instead. In my brief but intense sojourn amongst the living, this is what I've seen. I would routinely do this in the good old days when I could actually meet with people face-to-face in a room. And at some point in the proceedings, I would ask them, so all in favor of the prospect that everybody knows that they're going to die, please raise your hand. And every hand would go up, no hesitation. And I'd let them, you know, the hands just be up there for a minute and they're kind of looking at me a little uncomfortably like, so let's move on. And I wasn't moving on. And I would say, now you're sure. And of course, they'd look at me like, how can you possibly wonder about this? And I say, well, okay, first of all, on the level of knowledge, well, everybody knows that everybody else is going to die. I'll give you that. So look at each other with uh, some degree of concern and compassion, knowing full well that the person beside you is going to die. Okay. Are you doing that? Of course, they wouldn't play along with me anymore because this is getting too weird. Right. (laughs) I say, so here's what I'm trying to tell you. There was a time in my lifetime, I think it was in the early 80s, I'm losing track now, when because of war in the Gulf and so on, there was an oil shortage. Okay. In those times, if I had said, is there enough oil? Everybody in the oil business would say, of course there is. Okay. Do we know that there's enough oil? Not just the oil guys, but the guy on the street would have said yes. How could you tell that we knew it? Because we'd done our due diligence and all that shit? Of course not. Nobody did. No, you could tell that we knew it by our behavior, by our buying behavior and our priority setting and all the rest of it. How many kids we had, all this was predicated on baby, don't you worry. There's enough oil forever. The fact that it's in the Gulf, we'll just have a war occasionally and straighten that shit out. And it'll be ours again, as it properly should be kind of thing. But it's not a geopolitical reality I'm pointing to. It's another kind. How could you tell that we knew it by how we behaved? Okay. Was it true? Nope. It was never true. Wasn't true then. It's not true now. How can you say that we knew it if it wasn't true, because there's a difference between those two things. That's why we know all kinds of shit that's not true. Now, let's turn exactly the same consideration to dying. How can you tell that we collectively know that we're going to die? How can you tell? 
Is it there in our behavior? Is it in our buying habits? In fact, can you point to anything that persuades you beyond a reasonable doubt that even the person in the reflection of the mirror behind you or the glass, whatever that is that I can see moving, knows that he or she is going to die? And generally speaking, the answer is you can't tell from how people are conducting themselves that they know any such thing. They might fear it. They might doubt it. They might debate about it. They might cleverly dismiss it in their youth and in their time of, you know, peak income generating years and all the rest of it. But know it, there's not a chance that people know it. And you know how I know that that's true? Because I was in the trenches with dying people and I never would have had a job if these people knew that they were going to die. Even the terminally ill folks you're talking about, people who were- Especially them. Yeah. I'm not talking about in the abstract. I'm saying that when people died on my watch over those years, most of them were shocked. Most of them were dumbfounded. Most of them were depressed, demented. You don't have any of that kind of reaction when stuff that you knew was coming comes. That's not what knowing does to you. So you know, by definition, these people didn't know this stuff. And what they did with it, instead of knowing it, is what delivered them to me and to what little I knew how to do at the time. That's a very sobering realization that this very knowable thing just wasn't known very much. And it sounds like what you're describing as a knowing is actually more of a belief that we believe that there is enough oil to go on forever. And the beliefs that we have around what dying is or when it's going to come for us. And I guess my interest lies with when people actually do know that they're going to die, because I'm sure there are some that you've encountered that have that relationship with death. How do their behaviors and their habits and their orientation change? How does it shift? Yeah, it's a good question. What does it look like if it kicks in? So in no particular order, just as it occurs to me, one of them is, baby, you are so alone and you're likely to remain so the bulk of your days. Why? Because you're like a a war veteran who's come home from the front lines and there's nobody to tell because nobody knows the reality that you've seen. You have no compatriots. And if you do find yourself in a room with somebody who knows, you're not going to talk about it because you both know. You take on upon yourself a kind of solemn silence that's a real drag at parties, right? Yeah. And your social life takes a hit and all the rest. Okay. So I'm just making a bit of a joke to show you that if this comes to pass and this knowledge becomes available to you as a living thing, not as a life annihilating thing, but as a living thing unto itself, it's not going to add quality of life to your remaining days. It would only do so in a place where you could live that out and have it recognized by the people around you and corroborated and most importantly, employed. That your understanding of your own mortality could be employed by the people around you and could be advocated and you could be thanked for living, you know, in that fashion. Now that I'm speaking a little bit from personal experience here now, you might be able to tell. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've been thanked for my work, but I don't know that I've ever been thanked for living as if I'm going to die. And I should say, too, it's important to acknowledge it borders on the impossible to live in a death phobic culture and to keep before your eyes the simple facts of your death 
and translate them into your priority setting and how you conduct yourself with other people and the rest. I mean, I have found it impossible to carry that around every day. There's too much seduction otherwise. There's too much desire to go the easier route. And amnesia, of course, comes in and the illusion that all your plans really count, you know, in your priority setting and decisions you make about the farm that I'm on right now. All of this stuff is conducted as if, unless I say it out loud to myself, that I'll be here for a long time to see the consequences. We were in the orchard the other yesterday, looking at the orchard, ducking the bugs. I said something like, I wish I had started this orchard 15 years ago instead of seven or eight years ago. Why? Well, first of all, I'd be able to see the fruit come more readily. But most importantly, I would have conducted myself 15 years ago as if I would stand here one day and desire to be in a full-blown orchard instead of one that probably will only come into full bloom when I'm not around to see it. Mm. I see a really direct correlation there between in the moment, the decisions that we make in a moment and the way we, I'll just make it very personal for me, the decisions I'm making on how I want to set up my family Mm -hmm. that are driven by afraid that we don't have enough or that that's not a wise investment to make right now, or we should wait a few more years until we have. And seeing the reflection in what you just said that 15, 20 years from now, I may look back saying, man, I wish I did that 10 years earlier. And I think there's a lot of wisdom there. And, you know, I'm a self-admitted optimist, sometimes to a fault, but I do believe that there's a degree of optimism necessary to move in a direction that we think is better for our society, better for our culture, better for our children. And so I'm, I'm curious as to what that actually could look like. I heard community in what you said. I, I'm imagining families of people who have and have embraced a different context for life and death, one that makes death more available and present every single day, and instead of something that is off in the future that we can't possibly imagine encountering. Well, I think that death, the fact, let's call it, the meaning pregnant fact of dying still needs to be translated. In and of itself, it doesn't grant you anything. It doesn't grant you insight or you know, sense of real priority, or it doesn't do any of that, you know, it could just depress you. Mm. That's at least as possible. So there's no inevitable upside to getting hip to this thing. You still have to do the work of translating what it means to know it. And that's really inconvenient work for the most part, because the whole circumstance around you is predicated on five-year plans and potential and you know, all the stuff and that there's a future and you can count on it. That's not optimism, man. That's a willing disregard of the evidence. Mm-hmm. Okay. The evidence is it ain't just old people who die, right? Now I'm here in spite of the odds because I had a few close calls over the years and it's statistically unlikely that I'm still here. And it's really important for somebody of your age to do your best to distinguish between a kind of generic optimism that's willing to see the upside or the bright side and a kind of strange dependence that requires upside in order to meaningfully participate. Mm. And it's the second one that I'm kind of warning about, you know? Sure. So my rap on hope is about that problem. You know that, Mm. have you heard the last couple records we released back last year? Dude, you are so behind. Come on. Okay, (laughs) we'll we'll take care of that. So Gregor and I released a couple records. 
the project we have together, the Grief and Mystery Project. One of them is a live record from touring in 2019. One of them is a studio recording we did when I was in Southern Mexico, probably when we spoke or just before then. And we put it together over the summer. There's a piece called Fate. When you finally get a hold of it, listen to the one called Fate. And it's a rumination in four parts about the relationship of my generation to your generation, essentially. And in it, I'm saying, you know, I'm talking to an earth rights guy. And he asked me, you know, basically what my take on things are. And I said, it's too late for a lot of things now. See, because we should, of course, correct it in the 60s. To be just frank and candid. And that time is gone, right? It's 50 years ago or more coming on 60 plus years ago. The accumulating 60 years of transgression has real consequence in the present moment. And that's not negotiable. You know, it's too late for a lot of things. And he said to me something like, you can't tell the kids that it's too late. It'd kill them. It'd extinguish their willingness to. And I said, you know, wait a second. Are you telling me that the only way to keep kids engaged is to keep them hooked on hopefulness, which is mm -hmm. exactly what he was saying. Mm -hmm. I said, I'll tell you what, man, if you want the kids to vote for you, you can talk that shit. Mm. But if you respect them, you can't talk that way. You got to mm. talk to them for real as if it's too late that the extinction of many possibilities occurred on your watch. Mm -hmm. And minus that, you ain't got no credibility to talk about much of anything, right? And I'm not elevating younger people by saying this and turning them into young spiritual geniuses. That's not true. There's nothing true about that, okay? The fact that they didn't get a chance to fuck up as badly as my generation has done doesn't make younger people free of any of this kind of stuff. And so this idea that you have to be possessed of hope to undertake work in the teeth of what's not possible is what a troubled time like the one we're in asks of you, right? Mm -hmm. This becomes your obligation. Mm -hmm. You got to proceed hope free, as I've come to call it. That it means you're going to do the work without demanding to get paid first by having your hopes affirmed before you've done anything. You see what I'm saying? Absolutely. Okay. So that's what I'm banging on here about when I say, look, Let's just forget about being hopeful and let's see if we can be manifestly present and organized around the dilemmas that face us. My way of explaining that is being more solution oriented than problem oriented. And I think that avoidance is also a reflection of someone who's more concerned about the problem than the solution that's available. And so that message really lands when it comes to optimism. And I, I agree with you that resting on hopefulness and hoping for the best possible outcome doesn't really prepare anyone for life. Even when things do work out or happen to fall in your favor, we know that those are few and far between. And I'm giving all of my influence over to something that's outside of me. Yeah. So the thing I reflect on when I think about that is that there's this aspect of inevitability that I think many of us still haven't embraced, especially in, in terms of what you're talking about with death. When we can look at the global situation, the population on the planet, so many ways in which there's inevitability right in front of our eyes and an unwillingness to face off with it. I think that some people don't want to talk about the difficult things with their children because they're not ready to face it for themselves yet. That collectively, we're not ready to face off with the, I mean, that's, that's why there still hasn't been any significant 
social reform when it comes to the climate and the environment. We're like tiptoeing our way there because like you said, it's a reflection of what people know. <laughs> people know that we're still got time to write this ship. Right. And so what do you think it is, especially that word grief that you brought in? I think that there's something around grief that is largely absent in our society or just anything that connects us to deeper feeling that is absent. I'm interested in your thoughts on that when you take a look at our society. Well, are you a parent yourself? Yeah, I have two children. Okay. So as one parent to another, see what you think about this. Okay. So it's hard to talk to kids, no matter their age, it has nothing to do with their age. It's hard to square up with them. It's hard to fess up, let's say. Okay. I agree with you. It's hard, but I got news for you. You never should have had kids if you got no capacity to be honest with them. You had no business procreating if you can't face the music and sing the tune of the troubles of the times that you're bequeathing to them by virtue of making them. That's that. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot to talk about now. Okay. You don't have an out clause because you made kids. So in that sense, you made the near future that now you want to abandon uh, when, when it's trouble instead of when it's just upside. Mm-hmm. Anybody can parent when it's upside. Sure. Right? They're cute. The whole nine yards, it's great. And I'm not diminishing it. I'm just saying the times like we're in and, you know, your comments there elucidate this very well. The times that we're in require first and foremost that we be faithful mm-hmm. as witnesses, not as advocates, as witnesses. That's the only way younger people can get a handle on what the hell. That's where it Mm. comes from, from the willingness, the deeply inconvenient willingness of people older than them to see things for what they are, to fess up to what didn't get done and should have been, you know, the best example I can think of right off the top of my head. They tell me, I haven't seen it. I just heard reference to it. They very recently some local population in a small place in Iceland took it upon themselves to mount a plaque at the foot of a receding glacier. And apparently in Icelandic, the plaque, the plaque said three things. First one was, we know what's happening. Second one was, we know what's to be done. Third one was, only you will know if we did it or not. Now, who's the you in the third statement? Well, you could say it's the future. And yeah, that's there definitely. You could say it's young, very young people. And you wouldn't be wrong. Or you could say that it's the glacier that it's speaking to. That it's not using the glacier as some kind of teaching moment for people. That it's actually in a kind of animistic way to address the glacier as a living being who is in recession, who's literally melting away to nothing. Only you will know if we did what we know needs doing. That's what it means to have kids in the world now. You got to be able to confess, not fault find. I don't really mean that. I mean, confess doesn't mean admit you're wrong. Confess simply means to articulate to the best of your ability a fair assessment of things as they stand. That's what mm-hmm. confession actually is, no? 
Yeah, I like that you clarified that because so many people, myself included, have had a reference for confession as something that is usually associated with some level of shame, that I have to override and overcome my shame or choose to continue holding on to and embrace my shame after, subsequently after confessing whatever it was there. What I hear you saying is just an admittance, an acknowledgement of where we stand so that we can decide where we want to move forward, not to confess and then sit back and watch the glaciers melt, but confess so that we're all on a realistic page together. Yeah. You know, realism is not nearly as popular as you might think it is. No, man. Right. Far from it because it realism doesn't work for hope junkies. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And you know, as a parent, just speaking to my son is he'll be six later this year. So I've been a parent for almost six years. My daughter has just turned two. And for any parent, the hardest thing to imagine is losing our children. We're like a couple of generations removed. I mean, there's still people in the world who the infant mortality rate is, you know, sometimes they're, if you have four children, you're lucky if two of them make it to adulthood. Right. And I know myself, it's a very privileged perspective to have. I expect on some level that my children are going to, I'm going to watch my children grow old and I'm going to pass away while I get to watch them with their budding families. Right. And that is, I think, what you're speaking about that is the risk, getting attached to that. What if that doesn't happen? Will my world collapse? Will I unravel? I watch a lot of people who do, who experience misfortune in their life that really is just life itself. The reality is kids die everywhere, every day, and we lose people unexpectedly. Yeah. And the expectation part of it is just the story that we started to believe at some point. You know, I think it's important that we not be too say too easily that kids die every day. I just want to sound a note of caution here and say, you know, I worked in that business. I worked with kids who were dying quite a bit. You know, it clearly pushes you to the very edge and beyond of what you think sanity is and what you're capable of. And uh, statistically speaking, something like two thirds of marriages don't survive the death of a kid inside the marriage. At least two thirds, I think it's 70 something percent. So it's a word to the wise is that, you know, when we're talking about this now, we don't make as if, hey, dude, just realize that it's possible. No, no, no. It's extremely undoing, right? Because in our corner of the world, it's uncommon. It doesn't happen very publicly. We have no capacity to, say, have a place in our regular lives for this deeply unsought reality. There's no place to put it because we don't have practice. You know, and something has to go horribly wrong, like unnaturally wrong for a child to die. And that's not what it means, but that's the meaning we've attributed to it by virtue of its scarcity. And this is going to be a hard thing to say aloud, but the truth of the matter is that infant mortality and child mortality was one of the ways by which our population was manageable in this world. And as soon as we began to defeat that particular aspect of things is in addition to extending our lives and so on, there was demonstrable consequence for the world, like within a generation or two. Mm-hmm. So this is not all upside, though it might favor what we want. See, so many people your age come to me either, well, in the old days in person and now more like this, and they will ask me point blank, what do I think of whether or not they should have kids? And this question is coming from a lot of places, but one of them is a kind of social justice orientation that questions the legitimacy of adding to the gene pool 
and adding to the mouths to feed and all the rest. So it falls to me to say, look, somebody's got to say it. The world doesn't need your child. You might. Mm. You might call it a basic human right to procreate. And I would understand if you did. But if everybody exercises their basic human right to procreate, the world will not survive the exercise of our right, period. Yeah. So now there's one thing you have to contend with in order to procreate. What else? Well, all the things we've been talking about here as well, that it doesn't get you anything. You're not on the upside of life at all. It opens you like a can opener does a can. That's true. You'll never be the same. I'm not quite sure that that's inevitably true. It makes you a better person, maybe for a while, sometimes. That's the more realistic thing to say. You wish it was the magic wand that turned you into the person that you think you're capable of being. Well, it's not what it does. And the kid's not in the world to make you a better person. Mm. So now what? Well, you've created a kid who's capable of at least as much mayhem in this world as you performed. Uh-oh, you didn't count on that either. No, you thought you were making a little perfect being. And well, I don't know that they start that way, but they don't finish that way. None of us do, right? Mm -hmm. So the point is, you got to be a, a serious ass grown up to take all of these things on and then go ahead and do it in the teeth of this particular kind of emotional storm where it's not one of the few good things that you can do inevitably, inalienably good. That's not what it is. It's another crapshoot. Are you going to do your best? Sometimes. What about the rest of the time? The rest of the time you're failing to do your best. How's that? And the kid will show you that. Not because they know, but because they'll be a product of the fullness of the kind of person you've become. Not the best of you. Mm. And then it turns out, oh my God, having a kid is one of the most autobiographical things you can do. It's like skywriting or something. You're going to sign your name on the clouds themselves when you have a kid. Mm. That's true. And you'll be out there and you won't thank your kids so much for outing you in the years to come. And they inevitably will do that, right? Mm. If you're lucky, you live long enough that your kid comes to you having come out of the strange weather of childhood and acknowledges the three-dimensionality of you as a human being instead of regarding you over and over again as if all you are is their parent. See what I mean? So it's a, really, it's a wild ride, no? And it means something different now than it meant even when I was having kids. It's a very questionable, properly so, thing to do. You take upon yourself a degree of responsibility that you simply can't calculate. If you did, I mean, the act of trying to procreate itself would suffer, to be very frank about it, you know? If you yeah. think, what am I doing? The ability to go through with it could uh, be diminished as well. So, so what does it all mean? Yeah. It means you have to decide and hope to God you decide with the full, with the full menu in front of you of what could be and what it all could mean. Well, that's why I think these intergenerational dialogues are so essential and important. Yeah. Because when I was 27 years old and we got pregnant with our first child, 
none of these things were available to me and none of these awarenesses. Would they have made me consider things differently? I imagine they would to some degree. I'm sure I would have still chosen to have children because of my own beliefs and outlook on life. But at least having someone to reflect that back and ask those questions, um, choosing to become a father, even just that, we're really zeroing in on one particular part of the human experience, but having a greater thoughtfulness around a decision of that magnitude, being willing to consider the consequences beyond just having a cute, cuddly little human to love and adore. Right. But for generations into the future, I also recognize and acknowledge that's an important, if we are to make it anywhere collectively as a society, then it's going to require at least that minimum level of effort and foresight. And it only happens when we can communicate across generational lines, people with different experiences and different perspectives to learn from each other. So that's why I always relish a moment to sit down with someone of your experience and someone of your perspective and to share that with most of the guys who are listening here are somewhere in their 20s and 30s who are thinking about parenthood or someday will be fathers or maybe just became one and at least having some more visibility and awareness of what that really entails, what that means. Right. I don't know if you use the word awake. I think you use the word consequence. So let me just elaborate slightly and just give you a very simple etymology of the word awake. Now, this is a word, of course, that everybody thinks they know what it means. It's the opposite mm-hmm. of asleep or more philosophically or spiritually. It means I don't need to replay it. Everybody, quote, knows how we use it. Mm-hmm. It's not what it means at all. This is what it means. It's an old Anglo-Saxon word. So the A in front, not the negating prefix that it is in Latin or Greek. The A is a preposition in Old English, and it means something like of or pertaining to. And then the root word is basically the same then as it is now. We use it in two forms, right? One of them is the thing that ensues after death, that event which is, of course, very, very scarce now, maybe even illegal right now as we speak. Mm -hmm. But even before the pandemic, I'm not persuaded it was as nearly as common as the fantasy inside would suggest. So it's the thing that happens after you die. And the other meaning of wake is that thing in the water or in the air that fans out behind you as you make your way. So if you just elaborate this ever so slightly and put the words back together, ah, and wake, it's very clear that the condition of being awake is the condition of being gathered into an understanding of the consequences that fan out behind everything you do and everything you don't do and everything you say and everything you don't say and all the shoulds and all the shouldn'ts and all of that shit. And it generates consequence and you don't control most of it. You put it into motion, but you don't exercise dominion over it. Mm. And when you realize that that's what awake really means, there's no upside to being awake inevitably. Then you realize that the sound upon awakening, particularly in a time like ours, is not hallelujah. It's not, I once was blind. What was it? I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. It's not amen. The sound upon awakening today is something much closer to a sob. That's the cost of waking the fuck up. It's hard. And the immediate consequence is it's worse than it seemed. 
And that's the kind of grown-ups that this time needs. Awake grown-ups that way. I don't think much more needs to be said. That's a very relevant and important punctuation mark to put on this conversation, Steve. Mm. I, I really appreciate you bringing that and representing that uncomfortable conversation that so many of us are not willing to have and championing that message in all the different ways that you do. Appreciate you taking time here today. But before I let you go, tell us a little bit about what you've got coming up and where people can go to learn more about you. Of course, we'll put that in the show notes as well. Well, the truth of the matter is I got shit going on or coming up, don't I? I got nothing. I could pretend, I could fantasize, but as I look down the pipe, the chance of me reacquiring my old performer's life, very remote, really and truly. That's one. Two, of course, that didn't prevent me from just finishing a book while I was down in uh, Mexico, writing out some aspect of all of this. And it's a meditation about many of the things we just talked about, actually. It's called The Generation's Worth spirit work while the crisis reigns. So it's a meditation that's very present. I'm looking through the lens of the plague or the pandemic at certain obligations that the generations might have, the gist of it. My partner in the Grief and Mystery Project and I are working on a new record in the very preliminary stages. And it's going to be a record about love, I think. Very strange decision to make. I don't even know where it came from, but we looked up one day in one of our conversations and realized that seems to be the next place that we should devote ourselves. So that's, you know, coming up, we're probably going to make a film with the band, with a really experienced uh, filmmaker named Bruce McDonald in uh, sometime in the summer, because the record that we, we released two records last year, one's called Dark Roads, that's a live record from the tour we did. And the studio record, we've never performed because Gregory and I essentially made it with no reference to anybody else. We played all the music and so on. And, and we've been longing after the opportunity to play it. So the film, I believe, after one or two rehearsals, just to get our parts straight, is going to be the first time we perform the record. No audience, an empty soundstage. And the distribution of the cameras and the lighting are such that we won't be faking a performance. We're actually looking for the record in real time with each other. Wow. So there'll be that kind of a document. And uh, beyond that, you know, I'm just going to try to get seeds in the ground in the next 10 days and try to remember that once upon a time, I actually was a farmer. <laughs> wow. Well, certainly look forward to everything that you just mentioned that you are creating and continuing to track and trace your journey. I always, like I said, I always appreciate an opportunity to be in your audience and to hear what you have to share and grateful that you took some time today to hit us with another dose of that wisdom that you've accumulated over the years and enjoy your time back up North and hopefully those seeds get in the ground, not too late for you guys. Amen. Thank you so much for your invitation, boss. It's good to know. Let's put it this way. You keep up your end. I'll keep up my end. Somewhere in between, something might benefit. You got it. It's a deal. All right, fam. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Make sure to go and cash in on our promo code for our 12-week Ignite program. Go to risingman.org slash Ignite. And when you get to the checkout screen, punch in the code SUMMERHEAT30. One word, SUMMERHEAT30. will give you 30% off of the ticket price there. Go get locked in today. The discount expires on Friday, June 18th at midnight Pacific Standard Time. So go take action right now. 
For links and resources to this episode and all other episodes, you can check that out at risingman.org. Please subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to us, as well as our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash the Rising Man Movement. Give us a follow on Instagram at Rising Man Movement to check out all the content and posts that we're dropping these days. Go check us out over there. Give us a follow. Big shout out to everybody who's been supporting the Rising Man Movement. So many names, so many of you who've come forward, who've given your blood, sweat, and tears, who've shared the podcast episodes with your community in all those different ways. I'm so grateful to everyone who's been giving back to this movement and helping it really move. Until next time, rise up and claim your destiny. Your destiny.